Welcome to the Modern CPA Success Show, where we're 100% focused on helping accounting firms achieve success. If you're an accounting firm owner who wants to learn how to grow your firm by providing virtual CFO services, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to our episode today. Uh, my name is Tom Waddleton. I am one of the facilitators for today's session. I'm a full-time virtual CFO with Summit CPA Group. My other co-facilitator, Adam Hale. Adam, hello. Hello. Yep. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well today. And then we're excited to have a guest today. So Brandon Poe is with us. And without giving a lot of introduction, Brandon, you want to tell us a little bit about you and career journey and what's taking you to the kind of things that are keeping you busy today? Sure. So I started my career in public practice. I am a CPA. I started with Ernst & Young in the audit side and quickly realized I was in the wrong place. And, uh, <laughs> and most people are, you know, you said Ernst and Young and audit. So that pretty much solidifies that. I think everybody is probably in agreement. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So I actually left and went to work for a smaller kind of mid-sized firm and did some tax work and just, you know, I, I spent about five, six years in public and just realized I'm probably not best suited for public. I wanted to do sales work. And so I actually went into a, different industry for a little while. I went into a kind of construction related industry, did sales and learned sales and really enjoyed it. And then found the career I'm in now, which is brokering CPA firms mm -hmm. uh, in 2003. And that was a great way to marry my accounting experience with my sort of um, like of sales work. And so I've been selling firms since 2003. Um, and then in 20. 20, we launched a virtual uh, workshop for CPA firm owners called Accounting Practice Academy. Oh, well. what, do, what do you do in the, what's, what's the purpose of the workshop? So the workshop is, you know, really, it sort of targets that smaller CPA firm owner, I'd say one to five million in revenue is our target. Okay. And what we do is go back to fundamentals. Hmm. By the time you get to a million in revenue, your practice might have become a little, um, you know, scattered and unfocused. And so we, you know, we use a lot of the data driven analysis tools that we use on our brokerage business to help owners of firms kind of see their firm from a high level, almost buyer's perspective. And so with our M&A experience, um, I think some of those data points, um, they're they're obvious to me because I look at firms every day, but um, they're very sort of when a firm is unfocused, you can't see your way out of that mm -hmm. spot very easily. And so we help people see their practice the way it really is. And then they can make really clear decisions about how to cut their hours, build capacity, um, break free from some of the work that's really anchoring them into their current situation. And so we start with a big, heavy deuce of pruning, typically. So most of our members will go through, they'll prune their practice. Uh, then they'll start looking really hard at pricing strategies. They'll look at their team and what they can delegate, get off of their plate, and then evolve more into the advisory space, if that's where they choose to go. Interesting. Yeah. I'm curious, when you talk about pruning... Let's start there. What are the biggest areas that you have people initially? Because I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm a million dollars, you're coming in, I'm hoping you can tell me, okay, keep what you have and get bigger, right? And you're saying, no, let's prune. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I would guess that's true. Where, where, yeah, okay, that's where are the main course. targets that you're initially saying, okay, here's what you're cutting? Well, it depends on who, it depends on what they have, sure. right? So what, what we have is we give them tools so they can look at what their practice is and they can make their own decisions about what they need to prune. So the data, it's, it's a data-driven uh, exercise. So for some people, I tell you, a common thing people prune is just the standalone 1040 tax return. Okay. In person, right? Those are the worst. Oh, like yeah. if, is, so if, they, if they follow that with in person, everybody's just like, oh, not worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at like really your, your, how many touches you have on that client, how much time is involved how much seasonality is involved with that. Like if you look at all of these things, um, it's usually not, it, it's not priced where you're making money yeah. on that for most, for most firms that size. And 
we did an analysis on, you know, again, on the M&A side, we did a pretty thorough analysis just this year on firms and we looked at days on the market, mm-hmm. right? Like which firms are selling quickly, which firms are staying on the market for a long time and what kind of patterns emerge from that analysis. And the pattern that probably probably jumped out the most was when we see a high number of personal tax returns in a practice, we see higher uh, staff turnover, we see lower cash flow to owner percentages, and we see uh, higher owner hours, and therefore more days on the market when it goes to sell, and lower multiples when it does sell. So um, that was the one thing that really popped out from that analysis. Interesting. Yeah, when we went through our, so when, you know, our journey was, we, we got to about, um, probably about a million or two in revenue at the time. And then we were like, okay, how are we going to grow? So we can grow organically, which we're doing pretty well. And then we can do it through acquisition. We felt like we had our practice kind of a little bit under control. We thought, oh, let's, you know, entertain some acquisitions. And at the time we were brick and mortar. So we were in a physical location. So there's some boundaries there that we had to kind of adhere to, but um, we did stretch our legs a little bit and kind of started to look out. And I'll tell you what, time and time again, what we found with exiting firm owners were they were aging out. Mm -hmm. They worked 2,800 billable hours or 2,400 billable hours. Like whenever you did the math on all the 1040s they did, it's like, well, hell you're paying to work there. You know what I mean? If you took your hourly rate times how many hours you worked and your profitability, like what you brought home, it's like you paid to have a staff around you doing a few of those things. And so after we looked under the hood of, you know, probably three or four of those, we were just like, we put our hands up and we're like, we don't want to, you know, take me to hire two to three people. And then because they did a lot of in-person work, now I had to replace a personality too in a relationship, which even makes it worse, um, you know, right from the get-go. So, yeah. The good news, though, is that it's not that hard to fix once you um, know how to fix it. And, um, you know, I feel like the staffing challenges that people are facing right now are somewhat of a blessing in disguise because it's forcing it's forcing people to like, oh, gosh, I don't have any capacity. What's their first instinct? Oh, I need more people. Right. Right. Right now, they can't get those people. So they're having to think, okay, okay, in that case, what do I do? And pruning and, and, and actually pruning, you know, it's just like uh, in your garden, you've got to prune, you've got to weed it. And if you don't, um, you're not going to get that next level growth until you do those things. Yeah. Yeah. So do you subscribe to the adage of you should be running a firm like you're preparing it for sale? I hear that quite a bit. And do you think that's a good way that people should have in their mind? Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, because it just gives you a fresh perspective, if nothing else. I mean, if you have no intention of selling your firm, you should look at it from that perspective from time to time anyway, because the things that are going to make a buyer like your firm more are also going to be the things that make you like your firm more. Sure. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. hundred percent. It's kind of like if you, if you have a house, how many of you have had a house and you fix it up right before you put it on the market? Well, and then you think, gosh, if I had redone this kitchen five years ago, we could have enjoyed it, you know, or if I had done this patio addition or whatever, I could have enjoyed it and then sold it and still gotten the value. Yeah. Um, same, same concept. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, what, what's interesting, and, and Brandon, I don't know how often you've ever Googled your name, but like we had this nice link to your website and everything, but I just, uh, you know, just typed in your name. By the way, don't do that. There's a, a lot of Brandon Poe's that are like on parole, apparently. Um, just saying. Like, so just You're not putting that out there. Now, right? <laughs> no, I, I was making sure it wasn't the Brandon yes. Poe. Um, but uh, so I did get sucked into a video every now and again. But um, that aside, what I thought was kind of interesting, um, you know, whatever I was looking at your profile on your website is that, you know, oftentimes you talk about like, you know, you'll run into somebody talking about running an effective firm or exiting a firm, uh, you know, or starting a firm. And I saw the two books that you authored are kind of bookends, if you will. You have like how to start your own CPA firm and then how to get out of it. <laughs> so um, can you kind of walk us through that journey? Like, because I think a lot of the people that are listening to our podcast are folks that are 
just tired of industry. They worked at EY, they worked at Deloitte and they're like, Hey, there's a better way to do this. I want to, I want to be able to grow and start my practice. So if we could maybe just start with, you know, some of the fundamentals and things that you've seen people really grow in again, with that mentality of like, think of the end in mind, you know, right from the beginning, uh, can you kind of walk us through some tips and, and, and tricks that you think that would be helpful for those people that are on the podcast that are really trying to just really grow their firm from the beginning? Yeah. So to the books. So the first book I wrote was Accountant's Flight Plan, which was a little bit about exiting, but it was a lot about practice management that I had just learned through working with clients that were selling. And so that first book was written from the perspective of, you know, I've just collected all these interesting practice management techniques from clients of ours. And somebody would, um, for example, someone would have a really good high quality team that they didn't have to micromanage at all. And just people that kind of really took care of the firm and they got good margins that way. And so I just asked the seller, like, you know, how did this come to be? Like, what, what was your secret to, to having this, you know, outcome? And I was just taking notes and then I had a lot of notes. I kept a little journal and my wife said, you know, you got to, you probably could write a book from this journal. <laughs> And I was like, you know, that's a really good idea. I probably should do that. And I did. And um, and then it got picked up by the AICPA and was published as an ebook. And then they asked me to do a rewrite of On Your Own, How to Start Your Own Firm. So I wrote the second edition of that book, um, basically modernize it. I think it was originally written, the first edition was in the 90s or 80s even. So it was it was kind of old. I think there's a third edition now. Anyway... Um, I think the practice management, um, the accountant's flight plan is basically a practice management book, which is great if you're preparing your firm for an exit, but it's also great if you're building a firm. So I don't know that like a lot of the things that I write about are very fundamental. There's not like some secret magic tech stack or magic paint by numbers pricing strategy, or it's just kind of like foundational common sense stuff about running a business. That's, you know, it's not that complicated, but people just don't spend the time and focus on it mm -hmm. enough. I mean, you see that with as CFOs, you see that with your, your business clients, right? If you can just get people to focus on, focus their attention there, they'll make progress. And it's the same thing with CPAs that own yeah. firms. Um, but starting, um, I think starting a firm has become very different with the technology. Um, so when I wrote On Your Own, there weren't that many virtual firms um, in existence at that time. And, and so if I were going to rewrite that again, I would probably highly recommend people create a virtual practice instead of a brick and mortar practice. Why is that? Um, the scalability. I mean, the hardest thing about starting a firm from scratch is it takes a while to get clients. If you're, if you're, if you're going to start a brick and mortar traditional practice, now, it, I think there's a, a certain shortage of CPAs, so it might not be as hard as it was even five years ago, but um, it's just way easier to start a virtual firm because your market is, your geographical market is so much bigger. So you, know, you can do some uh, pretty good digital marketing and probably start a practice faster than if you were going to start a brick and mortar. Yeah. I mean, we're fully distributed. We, we believe that. I mean, it was not only, it was for talent acquisition. And I know if you're starting your practice, you're not thinking about hiring people right away, but you know, being able to hire outside of your market was important, being able to get clients all over the place. And in terms of increasing enterprise value, um, you know, we talked about probably the the biggest Achilles heel is at least it was for us whenever we were looking at buying firms was whenever we heard, you know, what percentage is your in-house tax returns done? That's mm -hmm. what would make us throw up in the back of our mouth. I would assume that you get the opposite whenever you're doing virtual, right? So the client's used to being in a virtual environment. So if I'm in Indiana and I buy a firm in Louisiana and they're used to working virtually, now I don't have to worry about the obstacle of not being able to go to the client's office or them come to me, right? Right. No, Absolutely. Um, but I, I feel like even if you're starting a virtual firm, you've got to get the fundamentals right. Like if you don't have the right pricing strategy, you're not going to prosper. Sure. 
Um, if you don't have the right client selection process or filtering, you're going to, you're going to suffer. Right. Um, and even as you do grow and you scale and you hire people, if you don't have a good hiring process, yeah, that that's, that's another skill set that people need to have or need to be able to employ people that have that skill set. It's a critical skill set. So all of those things of, of scaling, whether you're scaling really any business, those are the things that determine success. You talked about the Accounting Practice Academy. And one thing that stuck with me, Brandon, that you said was, as you came in, you're talking to people about pruning and pricing. I think there might've been one other thing. And then you move into advising. And my guess is when you first started working with people, what they probably say is, I want to move into advising. And you're saying, do these things first. It might be obvious, but but why do they need to do those couple things before they can move to advising? Because they don't have the time and capacity to dedicate to uh, it. And so the pruning and pricing. Okay, that actually is different than what I thought you were going to say. Okay, do you say just a little bit more about that? That that's how you that's how you free up the focus to be able to then implement that piece. Yep. Most CPAs that haven't made a strategic plan to operate otherwise operate in a very chaotic fashion. Mm -hmm. They're working too many hours. They're working their staff too many hours. They're focusing on too many different lines of work. You know, if you have a CPA firm and you're doing two audits in a, in a one owner firm, uh -huh. you are wasting your time. Sure. There's no way you're making money on yeah. two audits unless they're paying you 900,000 yeah. a year. Yeah, you know, that makes, yep, no, it makes a lot so, of sense. You know, it's it's just it's a what was it? Adam Smith, one of the fundamental um, economic principles that he sort of um, was all about was like segregation of duties and specialization. That's the key to economic um, development. Is you can't be so scattered. You can't have a sole practice and have an audit practice. Uh, a wealth management practice, a tax practice, a bookkeeping firm, a payroll firm. You can't, you know, unless you have a team, I, I shouldn't say it's the, it's the ownership, it's the team. If you don't have a team that's focused, like if you have a, let's say if you had an audit partner or a tax partner or a tax manager that you didn't have to worry about losing, um, then you could develop out lots of different specialties. But if you're a small firm and you're trying to scatter your your service offerings too much, you will become unfocused and unprofitable. That's usually. really helpful. I'll just tell you what I, where I thought you were going to go. And so this is a really helpful answer. What I thought you were going to say is then you, you can't scale if you're not doing it on top of a pruned and good pricing structure, right? You're going to go off of this new service. And if your house isn't in order, then that's going to be a mess too. The additional part that you mentioned that I like in part because Adam and I and our firm, we do coaching to other CPA firms who want to offer CFO practices. And it's really common that people want to go someplace. And if we were to check in with them like six months later, they're not nearly where they said they were going to be. And I think one of the questions we often don't ask is like, how much time are you devoting to this? And most likely it's very much what you're saying is, you know, they're using spare time, which probably is either none up to maybe an hour or so a week. And so you could look and say, okay, so yeah, then 20 weeks, how would you expect to get really far? You've had no time to devote to this because it's spare time that no one feels like they have. So I like your answer there. That's really helpful. Are you interested in offering virtual CFO services at your firm or scaling your existing service offerings? The Virtual CFO Playbook, How to Land $60,000 a Year Clients and Provide a Killer Client Experience, is an online series of modules that will equip you with essential tools for creating and delivering scalable VCFO services. These approaches have helped Summit CPA grow from $500,000 to upwards of $5 million in revenue over the past decade. If you're ready to grow your firm, visit summitcpa.net slash VCFO playbook to enroll now. You know, it's a little off topic, but something that I work with, um, with all my clients that I work with and I personally use all the time. And, and Tom, I know you've heard me preach about it a million times over is just four disciplines of execution. Yep. Like I just, that book, I always, I come back to that book probably two or three times a year. Um, and the reason being is because Brandon, it's everything that you just said. It is so simple 
you feel stupid. Like mm-hmm. after you read it, you're just like, well, duh. You know what I mean? There's no silver bullet there. It's just like fundamentals. But what it really hits on is everybody studies strategy and, and how to do this and how to do that. Nobody really studies execution, like yes. what it takes to actually get something done. And so whenever, you know, whenever we have somebody go to take the course or I have a client that's kind of on the fence if they want to work with us. I like send them a little brief on 40X. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if this gets you energized, if this like, you know, you mm-hmm. get you excited, then you would love to work with us. If it doesn't, then probably not your cup of tea because mm-hmm. we're really about getting intentional with the business and helping you execute on all those kind of things from a delivery standpoint. But again, also from, you know, that same intentionality needs to come in your your firm. And what I'm hearing you say, which I completely agree with, because it, that's whenever it matters, whenever you look under the hood, you have all these sexy metrics that you look at, like what's your average bill rate and what's your utilization, all these metrics that you look at. But ultimately, what's probably driving a lot of value that you see is operationally how you're set up, right? So Jody and I made a pretty conscious effort early on. I mean, don't get me wrong, we worked our ass off and we worked 80 hours a week, but we knew that wasn't the end goal. And what we did was we constantly made an investment back into the firm. So whenever we would, we literally built out an org chart and knew like how big and how many people we'd have whenever we wanted to get to a certain spot. And whenever we'd pick up two or three clients, we'd be like, oh, halfway to the accounting director. Mm-hmm. Oh, all the, now it's ready to hire the accounting director. So we started filling those seats in with new clients. Now, what sucked for us is, you know, you jump a million dollars in revenue and you've reinvested all that back into roles. But ultimately what that led us to was by the time we made our exit in, in uh, April of this last year, you know, if they ask us like, hey, what happens if, if Jody or Adam go away? Nothing. You know what I mean? We had a very high functioning team. Um, Don't get me wrong. Like we bring our own value in different Mm -hmm. ways, but as far as executing the day to day and making sure everything stays on, you know, level set and going, like we had a very high functioning team. Uh, So that was kind of our process as well, was just focusing on the operations and the SOPs and making sure that Jody and I were less and less valuable. And that's why we intentionally made it like Summit CPA, right? Mm. Instead of Grunden yeah. and Grunden and Hale or something like that. Um, it's because, and I know that some states with law firms and you got to put your name in it and that kind of stuff. But we intentionally did that because also whenever we went to a client, we didn't want them to know that there was only two of us. Mm. Right out of the gate, there could have been two of us or 200 of us. They didn't know. We're Summit CPA group. So we always wanted yeah. to look bigger than what we were. And then we always didn't want it to be contingent upon like, oh, I'm talking to the founder, you know, because that, again, would detract value. Do you see that in other firms that you're working with? I do. I mean, I think the fact that you guys really focused on people and you got to a place of where you could slowly let go is um, in some ways that's a counterintuitive strategy, Mm. right? I think especially if, if you when you start a firm or you're early in the in the firm, you know, maybe an acquisition, you you sort of instinctively think, well, gosh, if I'm going to grow, I have to do more, right? I have to do more sales work. I have to do more client work. I have to do more, more, more. And actually, it's sort of the opposite. You have to, at some point, at some point, that's true, that you do have to do more. But then when you want to scale, then you have to say, I got to do less. Mm-hmm. What can I do what can someone else do for me? And so growing is a process of actually letting go of things. And yeah, the more you, yeah, the more you grow, the more you let go of, and that requires really good team building skills, right? That's acquiring the right talent, investing your time and resources into developing that talent and being able to let go. I mean, you got to have somebody to delegate to, mm-hmm. right? Well, right. And a lot of times it's an ego trip a little bit too. You know, everybody wants to throw on their cape and go in and save the day, you know, that kind of a thing. So it does take a little bit, um, you know, you have to swallow your pride a little bit whenever you are coaching and delegating Mm -hmm. work to others, not to be like, oh, nope, get out of my way. I mean, I think that's kind of the curse of of professional service firms in general, whether you're talking about a law office or you're talking about, you know, there's how, how can you coach many people to do what you do as opposed to you being the one all be all for your specific thing. So we talk a lot about that. And, and again, it was a little bit of a painful experience for us because 
scaling is difficult, especially whenever you're giving it all back to, to new hires. But we had the intent of growing for that purpose and then eventually looking to exit. And we knew that that would kind of increase our intrinsic value, uh, the more, you know, the, the less reliant the business was really on us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. And that, that strategy worked out really well for you guys. Yeah, no, yep, absolutely. So what about, um, so I know people still though are interested in those, uh, those sexy metrics that we were talking about, right? Like, so what are you seeing in the marketplace today? What are some of the, the numbers and the things that I know just in general, they always talk about top line growth. You know, if you want to maximize value 10 to 20% year over year growth, there's a certain bottom line percentage or, you know, it used to be firms always, you could count on it. Firms always sold for one to 1.25 times revenue. Um, you know, and, and a lot of times it's 1.1 because the 10% was the commission for the broker. <laughs> and that was just kind of like par for the course. And then it feels like over the last like five or six years, everybody's kind of converted to, you know, if they're really small, like an SDE multiple, if they're bigger, an EBITDA multiple, what are you seeing? And what are some of those benchmarks for people to be able to kind of maximize their, you know, their their exit? Well, so what we tell people in APA, of course, we keep it simple. I mentioned to you, it's like we focus on the fundamentals, keep it simple. So we have four KPIs that we think any small CPA firm owner should track. And those four KPIs are really simple. I'm gonna cash flow to owner. Okay. Yeah. You say cash, <laughs> cash flow is first, right? Uh, uh-huh. Cash flow to owner, right? Top line revenue, headcount, just raw headcount. And then lastly, your number of days off, owner days off. Oh, owner days off. And a day off, yeah, and a day off means you're not working at all. You're completely unplugged. You're not checking a single email, taking a single phone call. So those are the four four things that we tell. You track those things, you'll see amazing progress in your firm. If you track 20 things, if everything's important, mm-hmm. then nothing's important. So pick what you want to really focus on. I tell people in that one to five million range, cash flow to owner, the goal should be 50%. Now, I do see... There's usually a fall off. You get to about three million, that cash flow owner percentage is going to generally decline. It's probably going to go down to thirty-five to forty percent, just because there's not as much owner production. So it's it's sort of natural to get you know get about a two and a half to three million dollar mark. You're going to see a little bit of decline in owner cash flow percentage. Um, time off, like super important, because if you're trying to sell your firm. A buyer, like you said, Adam, you see these practitioners just working mm-hmm. crazy hours. Um, people don't want that. That's that's a that's a business that's too dependent on the owner. And just and culturally, I think people really CPAs aren't working those old school hours anymore. Um, some are, but I think the majority of buyers that I talk to are what, very turned what off. What do you by like that. to see then? And that, what do you like changed. to see for the I owner mean, stays off then, Brandon? I like to see under 2,000 total hours a year. Okay. Okay. And then how much of that do you usually target for chargeable or do you? I don't, I don't recommend people figure that. Like if you're looking at cash flow to owner, it doesn't matter how much is chargeable and how much is not. The less chargeable, the better for an owner. Okay. Um, I wrote this... Um, piece with Rob Siegfried. Are you familiar with Rob? He's got a pretty big consulting firm and he was, he's a CPA that started from scratch and um, his goal was to get to zero billable hours after about 12 years of firm ownership. And people at the time, he had other managing partners of much bigger firms say, you're crazy. You, You know, you don't have to get down to zero billable hours. It doesn't take that much time to manage a practice. And Anyway, he said, you know, my time is better spent developing my people, um, covering risk of my practice and, and growing the firm and, and working on working on growth. And, and that, you know, was in his mind the most essential three things that he could do for the business. So um, I don't think tracking. Yeah, you know, I'm a big value pricing um, uh-huh. 
proponent. I don't think anybody should, I don't know why anybody would track time, honestly. Um, maybe you can use it for productivity, but if you, you know, if you think about the people that report to you, you kind of know if they're productive, whether regardless of what their timesheet says, right? And if you don't, then you're just not sure. paying attention. Yeah, at now all. we track, we do value pricing and track time. I have found it valuable as I look back on my own time in certain clients and I can look at how much we charge them my time. And you're probably not surprised. There are some clients that are disproportionate and that's had me look and say, okay, what do I need to be doing differently? Cause I'm spending way too much time for this client compared to someone else. And I've been able to make some changes. And in some cases looking saying maybe this is yeah. a client that really isn't a fit for what we're trying to do, or we should change pricing. So I found that valuable from our size. I could at the same time, if one of my team members says, Hey, I'm completely swamped. That would be one of the places we could look and say, well, what's taking your time? And is there something we can do around that? So I think it can be a useful analytical tool. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I for my management style, I, I just, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't find it valuable. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, from a pricing standpoint, it, it's really something I agree with Ron Baker's philosophy that it should just be left behind. Yeah, no, we, we actually just listened to Ron and I know Jody's been on his podcast a few times and Jody talks with him a lot. Um, we kind of agree with Ron. We we uh, we agree with him differently. Um, you know, like we believe in the value-based billing and he had to recently kind of change up his methodology and his thinking too. Like he's done a reboot on, you know, the practicality of his original assumptions of what value-based billing was. And it kind of aligns more with what we do in terms of like subscription-based billing. Um, but I think that, um, the, and, and I'm totally down for it and I can't wait for the day that it actually makes sense. But some of the stuff that you would measure is just kind of pie in the sky, um, you know, for us. And as, as Tom said, um, you know, and this is the great debate in the space, right? We, we use the time entries for very high level stuff. So if Tom comes to me and says, man, I'm just stressed out. I can't take any more clients because we measure based on book of business, you know, value based. Tom, you should be able to run a million dollar book what's going on, buddy, you know, and then I look at his time and what we find is, is a couple things. Number one, for being able to price those value-based services, um, you know, there's been time and time again, that we would say this service is absolutely killing us. Processing customer invoices is the worst thing in the face of the earth. Cause that's what we are going to get in trouble the most for. And then, um, but doing like bank recs is probably, you know, we're making hand over fist money. And then whenever you looked at the items, it's like, oop. Actually, it's the complete opposite. We make the most yeah. money doing AR yeah. because we charge a premium for it because we hate it. And then we discount the value of a bank rack and it takes us a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And so so we we do it to measure kind of pricing, you know, and we just kind of look at it from 10,000 feet and look for trends. We win some, right. lose some whenever you do value-based billing, right? But we look for trends and job profitability just to kind of see where we're at. And then again, just only if somebody comes to us and they're just like, hey, I am absolutely swamped. It's like, well, which client's killing you? And a lot of times what Tom would say is, you know, I hate working with ABC client. They're consuming my life. And then you look at their timesheet and you're like, huh, you're spending about an hour a month on them. (laughs) Like what's going on? Like you're spending 15 hours a month on this other client that we charge half as much money. Like, oh, but I like working with them. You know what I mean? So there's always like this, like very, you know, so it's a very like dramatic example, but Time and time again, we see that whenever you ask a person. So we don't use it to like beat anybody over the head or look at utilization and realization and drive right. business results. So we agree and totally in that regard and same way the value base. We just haven't been able to fundamentally get away from the um, emotional side of people saying, I'm tired and I and then point to the wrong thing or us say we're valuing this correctly and then come to find out we're not, you know what I mean? Like we haven't been able to take right. the emotion out of, of the determination of whether or not we're doing good. That's, that's always kind of my pitch back to anybody. That's like, I don't want to trust me. We don't want to count track yeah. time either, but <laughs> those are the only things that, you know, um, that we find challenging, especially whenever you've got, you know, 70, 80, a hundred employees, it becomes a lot well, more difficult. Right. And, and I think that's perfectly valid with larger teams, but you know, with, with most of our clients in that one to 5 million range, they don't have extremely large teams. So there tends to be um, a sense of, um, 
it's, it's a little easier to put your finger on the problem yes. without the timesheet, in my opinion. Do, do you find that to be an obstacle if you did run into somebody like that? Like, so if I'm a buyer, I'm coming in, I would, I would imagine any partner meeting I've ever been in, what's their realization? What, how many billable hours do they have? So if you're selling a business that doesn't track time and you're selling them to, you know, a client and the client's like, cool, give me the rundown. How many charge hours do they have? How many, you know, and you're like, oh, they don't have any of that stuff. Is that a it happens? It, it's no, it happens all the time because most, a lot of firms don't have that stuff, especially for the owner, like the owners, they might, you know, the staff mm -hmm. might track time, but the owner might not track time. Right. I mean, we just go back to the fundamentals. Like, look, look at the cash flow. Look at the, look at the owner hours. Like, you know, look at the main metrics and, and usually, um, if those metrics are really good, then those details uh, tend to not matter so much. Do you mind filling in, Brandon, then? I, I imagine people are listening said, okay, there were four key metrics. What are they? And we, we haven't talked about top line revenue or headcount. Do you mind filling in those two? And that way people feel like they sure. know what they're looking at. Uh, sure. So, um, I mean, top line revenue, when you're, when you're going for a sale, growth is definitely a positive. Um, you want to see like what I find that makes buyers most comfortable is there's a steady sort of consistent pattern of growth. Um, fast growth can scare people mm -hmm. sometimes um, in that, you know, easy come, easy go, I think is the mindset there. If the client's not that old or hasn't been with the firm that long, then they might not be as sticky as a client that's been there longer. And there's some truth to that. Um, so I think in terms of growth, I think you want to see you know steady, okay. steady growth. And then yeah, um, in terms of in terms of headcount, um, I think that's just an important track uh, for your for your own mm -hmm. um, observation. I think if you're going for a sale, um, you know if you're understaffed right now, that's a negative. If you actually have if you're overstaffed right now, that's great because uh, most buyers probably need the capacity. So is that measured um, in terms of revenue per headcount under or overstaffed or how, how does someone say this is, you know, it's a $4 million firm. They're mm -hmm. under or overstaffed. Well, I've seen a lot of variation in, in staff size and, and revenue per person. I saw an interesting, um, I saw mm -hmm. Vern Harnish speak at a, um, at an EO event um, a few months ago. And he had this really interesting kind of general statistic about revenue per person. And I, I, I may not get the numbers exactly right, but I'm going to get them pretty close. So I'll ask you, what do you think is the average revenue for a small company, you know, like an under 10 million company? What do you think the average revenue per person for everyone is? in the firm? Any for everyone in the firm, just not, not, firm? A, not, a, not a CPA mm -hmm. firm, a general just. This is like general small business statistics. Oh, probably a hundred thousand per headcount, or well, if it's not a professional service firm, I guess professional service, I would probably say one fifty. If it's not a professional service, then I would probably, you know, it's probably sub one hundred thousand. Would be I would guess. have said about two hundred before I heard yeah, Evan's I, answer, so I won't. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's closer to what you said, Tom. I think the number that that Vern quoted was around two hundred. Guess what it is for a large company. Should go up with their synergies. This should, is, should be higher, but my guess is it's not. This is true. What, is it? It's a lot higher. It's like six hundred. Yeah. Hmm. And I found that to be like that really is a head scratcher. Like, how is that? Because you you think there's different. You know, there's mid level management layers. There's a lot of structure. Um, so I found found that was interesting. I I think a CPA firm um, should be around two hundred. 250. 200 to 250. Wow. So what we're finding is like, I think in the cast, they just came out with a study. I think they were the average cast practice, which is advisory, I think is right around 125,000 people. Oh. I have the, I mean, and this only has like 67 firms. We're at the DCPA. Um, and yeah. And I mean, kind of to your point, like whenever we're, we're talking and looking at some of these metrics, I mean, it's just a different way to look at business, especially whenever you're looking at, um, 
uh, the median result was 121,000. Okay. Yeah. And so the top performers were 231. So a pretty big delta between the top performers and, and the other ones. But um, I think, the, and that was at the uh, CAS benchmark survey from CPA.com um, that just came out like a month ago, pretty mm -hmm. interesting stats there. But I think I, what was funny is we had, I had this marketing guy come on, um, you know, and he was talking to me about, you know, Hey, how do I market to CPA firms? Really want to, I, I just want to focus solely on CPA firms. I'm like, Oh, cool. He goes, I, I go, what's your target market? And he's like, I want to work with, you know, probably above 50 employees, mm -hmm. uh, CPA firms is kind of what I'm thinking. And I said, Hey, by chance marketing guy, did you do your research? And he's like, He's like, oh yeah. I was like, you know how many accounting firms there are in the U.S.? And he's like, and he's like, I don't know. I was like, eh, about 45, 46,000. And you know, his eyes light up, and he's like super excited. And I go, you know, like the fifth, the five hundredth largest firm only has twenty employees. <laughs> so like, whenever you look on the, whenever you look on the CPA's yep. top. 400 or the top 500, you know, there's mega giants in the top four and then five to 30 are also just massive. And then you get to even the top 100 and they have 300 employees and you're the top 100 out of 46,000 firms in the U S you know, the fifth hundred largest firm has like 20 to 25 employees and is like right around $3 million. So most of the CPA firms that are operating out of there, sub 20 people and probably living somewhere from that half a million to a million and a half in revenue. Do you find that quite a bit whenever you're like people coming to you, like what's a normal size uh, when people are trying to exit? Do you, uh, do you go off of like different metrics? If they're sub 1 million, do you not really work with people that are sub 1 million? How does that happen? So we, um, our typical client, I think our average, uh, on the sales side is probably about eight or 900 K, mm, okay. um, on average, um, on our APA side, um, it's probably about just over a million, maybe 1.1, okay. 1.2. Okay. Um, the firms that we work with. So those are four um, or five person firms. So that's about right. If you're at 800, 900,000. Okay. Yep. Yeah, four or five person firms. Um, and you know, it's it's interesting though because I've seen like I've seen some really high performing firms. I, I sold a one owner firm that was doing almost three million wow. a few years ago. Right, right. And, like there can be exceptions for sure. Yeah, um, there are. There's just a lot of and there's a lot of variety in just the performance sure. of these firms. It's it's all. What do you the think place. are some of the biggest myths about selling when someone comes to you? And I assume they say, hey, here's what I heard. Like Adam said, you know, it's this kind of multiple. Do you hear several things that are pretty common myths where you're like, that's not really what you're going to find? Yeah, people think they have to, um, people think when they're selling, they have to take all the risk. Hmm. In other words, they sell on a okay. burnout basis. Oh. And that's a common myth. And the, the truth is, um, the truth is you'll find buyers that'll buy that way for sure. I mean, that's... Um, that's not a bad deal for the buyer, but there's also really good financing mm -hmm. in the marketplace. Um, there's a lot of lenders that focus on CPA firm acquisition loans. And so there's, and the, and the success rate of those loans is good. So the, they like to do those deals. So there's 10 year financing. Uh, if you own a firm, often you can get a hundred percent financing mm -hmm. over okay. a 10 year period. Um, so I think that's one. So if somebody death. wants an earn out, you say, hey, don't worry. I'm going to go talk to Brandon because I know there are people out there that are going to bankroll this for you. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, because yeah. there's no, no reason to just accept it um, because that's what you hear everybody does. What about the, the multiple? Are you usually seeing it as a multiple of this uh, cash flow to owner or are you seeing it more of like a percentage of sales? How are you usually valuing those? It, it's yeah, it's it's still it's still a multiple of revenue, top line revenue. And, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about why that is. And I think it's because the practice is malleable. In other words, the owner determines the results of the firm. Mm -hmm. And we've had a number of examples where I had a, I had one example in particular, this was really interesting where I had a firm in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the cash flow to owner was about 60, maybe even 65% on an 800K firm. 
one owner firm. So it was a high performing firm. And the buyer was from another state and he had a CPA firm at a state that he sold and he was operating at about a 40% cash flow owner. And then fast forward, and what's interesting is the seller ended up buying another firm through us in another city. And so we got to watch this little um, pattern play out both ways. The buyer who bought the high performing firm, I came back to him five, six years later. Guess what his margin was? It's about 40%. Mm. <laughs> the, new firm. the guy that sold bought a lower performing firm, but guess where it was five years later? Right. Yeah. 60, 65%. So who owns the firm is really going to determine the results over time. Okay. Yeah, but, the, but still small, right? Like, so, so yeah. for instance, I can't impact a $10 million firm profitability as an owner, like I could a uh, 800,000. Cause like I said, what I would find most of the time and what I would argue or want to see with that person that all of a sudden turned it into 60 or 65, I'd be okay. Now you don't work. Let's see. Let's let's see who has more days off and who doesn't work. What we found always is that person that hustled for the 60s to 65%, they were charging a premium and they were doing it all themselves. I get 500 bucks an hour. So I go out there and I just bill like crazy. I like working on Sundays and at nine o'clock at night. And then the other guy's like, nope, push it down. You know what I mean? Like, so we took more yeah. of the, the reduction to put people in place because we wanted to build. I mean, those things to me, and that's why I say, and I think that's the reason why whenever you say there's 46,000 accounting firms and there's only 500 that have more than 20 employees, I think it's because as a professional service firm, we really struggle with the idea of leverage and treating it like a, a normal mm -hmm. business. We have to do yep. it like based on our backs. And then, you know, and then that's why also if you have 20 or 30 people, you also have a five or six person partner. You know what I mean? It's like, why do you have 10 people and four partners? Like, in what Well, world and I that think exist? a lot of times, I mean, that brings up a really interesting problem. And um, I see this, I've known about this problem for a long time, and I really don't know that there's a good solution for it. But what happens is when you have multiple partners, somebody, is going to be very change resistant, most likely. And so it's really important, like who has veto power in your partner group? Mm. You know, if, if you're trying to change a, a practice, if you're trying to scale a practice, that's risky, it's kind of messy. And so if you've got a partner that's vetoing change and vetoing that growth, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get very far. And that is a common problem. So as people partner up, as they scale, and you get three or four partners, my experience has been somebody's going to be risk averse, somebody's going to be change resistant, and they're going to veto everything and the whole thing just kind of, you know, yeah. tops and out. As you talk, I, I think sure. seamless succession is one of your, is it product or sort of the, the mode you guys work in? Is that right? It's, it's, it's okay. what we've named Thank our you. process. So I'm succession. curious, when someone sells, yeah. is there a typical amount that owner stays on and continues working for that? seamless part where you end up saying, okay, yeah. So there, if they're a personality that doesn't match with the buyer, this is a real problem. Well, I think getting the right fit is, is mm -hmm. really job one uh, when you go to sell. So if that, if that doesn't work, that's probably a problem no matter how long the transition is going to be. Um, most of our transitions now this, this gets tailored some depending on the complexity of the client work and, um, the capacity of the firm and, and there are a lot of variables that can impact the transition time. But like in an ideal scenario for us, for a, a one to $5 million firm, two to four months okay. is what we recommend. That makes a lot of sense. So pretty quick. Yeah. Um, but that requires you finding a very capable sure. buyer, right? It, you need to find someone who can, uh, we, we just sold a, a $2 million firm, um, in Georgia in October and the transition was like a month, oh, wow. maybe even That's less. Quick. Buyer was like, I'm good. You can go now. <laughs> it, Brandon, as we work That's toward awesome. wrapping this up, I'm curious for the listener out here who's thinking maybe sometime I would, what would your advice be for 
um, at what point someone should call you, maybe timing wise, and when it makes sense to contact you versus maybe a do-it-yourself or a different type of person? Okay, so I think ideally if if we can start the conversation three to five years okay. before the Probably sale. Probably longer than most people that's, would think, um, I would guess, for the person thinking that. Okay. Well, I mean, if their practice needs, you know, a lot of times people come to me and they say, well, how much is my practice worth, right? And so um, I give them my, you know, my sort of understanding of that value. And if they don't like that value, then given enough time, they've got time to work on that. Right. So, um, and that's kind of where accounting practice Academy came in is, um, we saw that people sometimes needed to get their practice in a better position so they could sell for the price they needed to get it closed. Um, you know, as far as the do it yourself, I think, um, internal sales are Mm -hmm. often do it yourself. Um, you know, what I do is not rocket science. Um, but we have a large stable of buyers. Uh, we have a process that helps people determine the right fit. Um, um, you know, we market the firm very professionally so that we are able to capture uh, the strengths of the firm and, and even the weaknesses of the firm. And that helps find the better fit. Um, you know, I tell people like, Hey, if you're going to sell your house, do you want one buyer? Or do you want sure. 10? What do you think is going to help you get the best fit and the best price? So it's somewhat of a numbers game. Um, and that's where our, you know, marketing, our time in the marketplace, um, we just built a big database of buyers. And if you, you know, put your practice on the sit on the market with us, you're going to get a lot of exposure and you're going to get a nice process, um, to help maximize the value. Oh yeah. We also offer transition guidance. Mm -hmm. So that's another big value add is just, you know, how do we tell the clients, how do we nurture the staff relationships? You know, what do we need to focus on? during that transition period. Yeah. My experience would be always get a broker involved. I mean, just everything that you just said, and then plus some, I mean, just the experience running mm-hmm. interference, being able to get a better deal. Um, they're usually worth their weight in gold. So. Same. Even some to just take the emotion out, right? When it's my baby, I've grown and I have to think, how do mm-hmm. I improve it? Someone else who can look at it and just say, here are the facts mm-hmm. is worth a ton. Most people have a really hard time with that. Yeah. Well, Brandon, thank you very much. This has really yeah. been helpful. And I think to a lot of people looking Wherever they are in that journey, especially in say three to five years out for them, this is probably really valuable. Even if it's, I'm not going to sell, like you said, some of the best run firms are the ones being run like you're planning to sell it because that's what makes it a good firm and more fun to run in. So thank you, Adam. Thanks as always for helping facilitate the thank conversation. You. Yeah, thanks. We could probably go two sessions on this one pretty we easy. So thanks for uh, coming and joining right. us, Brandon. Yeah, Have a great glad day. to come back. Thanks. Enjoy this podcast? Visit our website at summitcpa.net to get more tips and strategies for achieving modern CPA firm success. We're here to be a resource in this ever-changing industry.